We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to all the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Big hand for Abigail. That was a long passage. Yeah. Some of you are like, I've been thinking about volunteering to read scripture and not anymore. Uh, That's a long passage. They're not all that long. Uh, Let's take just a moment to pray before we begin. Father, we come to you now and we come from so many places and so many backgrounds. Some of us, our hearts are just resonating and filled with joy as we sing these songs and as we pray these prayers and as we gather with others to worship. And for others of us, God, it feels like you are so far away. We are just looking for you to show up in our life and it feels like you're not. 
for some of us, this is our very first time in a Christian worship service. And all of this is strange, and it's hard to make sense of. But God, we, we come from so many places, but in one sense, we come from the same, and that is we are all in need of your grace, and we are all in need of your voice. We have been listening to so many voices this week, voices outside of us, voices inside of us. God, we need to hear your voice this morning. Would you come and speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning, my name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. Good morning, appreciate that. And uh, silence, Uh, good morning. Um, uh, My name is Brent, I'm one of the pastors here, and if I haven't met you, I'd love to to get to meet you after the service today. Uh, Someone leaned up to me after Alex shared and said, you know, do you you really need to go up there and preach a sermon this morning? And no, so we're just going to go home. Actually, I spent some time on this this week, so, um, and you're here, so here we go. But Alex, that was, I mean, what a gift to get to hear uh, you share, hear about City Team, and hear your story this morning. Thank you for blessing us with that. Um, In 1983, there was this small little startup in Palo Alto, and it had started in a garage just seven years prior. And it had now grown, and it had grown to the point where the founder knew we need to find some people who actually know what they're doing to come in and run this thing. We need an experienced executive. That company was Apple. That founder was Steve Jobs. And the experienced executive that he would bring in was a man named John Scully. John Scully at the time was president of Pepsi, and he was making some coin, let's just say, all right? He was making lots of money. And Steve Jobs knew that if he was going to convince John Scully to leave Pepsi, it was going to take some serious convincing. And so for five months straight, John Scully and Steve Jobs got together every weekend to talk about Scully coming to work for Apple. And at the end of those five months, John Scully told Steve Jobs, I'm not going to do it. And the way John Scully tells his story is that he said Steve Jobs got about 18 inches away from his face. And he said, John, do you really want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? (laughs) Or do you want to come help me change the world? And for the next 10 years, John Scully was the CEO of Apple, and you know the rest of the story. Now, What I love about this story is that Steve Jobs is actually onto something, and he was onto something that Alex actually mentioned when he shared. And that is that every single one of us longs to be a part of something that is bigger than just ourselves. And let me tell you, what is on offer for you is something way better than being a part of a great company like Apple, as great as it is. God is actually offering and inviting you to be part of his church. You want to to find a purpose bigger than just yourself? It's being a part of God's mission through his church in the world. And this is is what we're talking about in this three-week vision series. What's our vision as a church? Our vision is to be a church not just for ourselves. Let me me break that down for you. We're a church. We, We talked about this last week. We said what it, the church is not an event to attend. 
That's how some of us think about it. The church is not an event to attend. It is a family to which we belong. It is to be a community of people who love and serve one another. It's to be a community where every person, every person feels known and cared for. But it's not just a family. It's, this is very important. It's a diverse family. That it's, it's, a, it's a group of people who don't all look the same, talk the same, think the same, or live in the same neighborhoods in this city. That it's, it's a group of people who are not bound by a common culture, a common class, or a common color. But we are bound by a common Savior. We are bound by our shared need for God's grace and our shared experience of His love and mercy. We're a church. That's what it means to be a church. But we are a church not just for ourselves. One theologian said, he said that the church is the only institution in society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. So what does it mean that we don't exist for our own sake? It means that we seek to be a church for the city. That's next week. And it also means that we seek to be a church for those who are not convinced. That's today. That's what I want to talk about today. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, I want you, and you're a part of this church, I want you to hear me say something. We want every single Sunday to be a good Sunday to invite a friend who is not convinced of the claims of Christianity. And if you are here today and you are not a Christian, you do not identify as a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear me say, we are so glad that you're here. Because we are trying to be, and we don't always do it perfectly, so I use the word trying. We are trying to be a church for those who are skeptical of the claims of Christianity. Who have not yet experienced the love of God. And I can't think of a better text to look at today than this text in Acts chapter 9. Because it, it tells a story of what is, you, you really could argue, the most famous skeptic the world has ever known. The Apostle Paul. Now, his name is Saul in this passage, but later in the book of Acts, his name gets changed to Paul. So I'm going I'm to, for, for the sake of simplicity, we're going to call him Paul today. What does this passage teach us? Here's the question. What does it teach us about what it means to be a church for the unconvinced? It teaches us three things. And some of you like to write all three of these things down at the very beginning of the service today, but this is a cliffhanger, okay? You're going to get these as we go along, all right? So here's the first. What does it mean to be a church for the unconvinced? It means to be a church where people can process their doubts and their questions. It means to be a church where people can process their doubts and questions. Now, the passage we read this morning, it tells the story of Paul's conversion. He becomes a Christian. He's, he's on the road to Damascus when suddenly he encounters this bright light from heaven. And he hears this voice and he falls to the ground. And, you know, on the surface... On the surface, this seems like a very dramatic and sudden and highly emotional experience. And many secular people today look at this and they think, this is why I could never believe in Christianity. Because it seems so subjective, so feelings-based, you know, so detached from any sort of uh, objective or intellectual reasoning. It's almost like you have to just kind of, faith means checking your brain at the door. 
uh, Bill Maurer, who's the, the famous comedian and political commentator, he says this, he says, religion stops people from thinking. Faith means making a virtue out of not thinking. Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens the, the famous author and atheist who died 10 years ago, he said, faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason, is what Hitchens says. And this is the perception that many people have today when it comes to faith. And it might seem like that's what's happening here in this passage, but I want you to look more closely. Look at what Jesus does when Paul encounters him. He doesn't say, Paul, aren't you just kind of overcome with emotion by, by my light? You know, don't you, just, don't you just have all the feels, all the warm fuzzies? In my presence, believe. Jesus doesn't do that. No, you know what he does instead? He blinds Paul. He blinds him. Some of you are thinking, well, it, you know, the warm fuzzies would have been a much better option. But Jesus doesn't do that. He blinds him, and he tells him to go back in the city. And then verse 9 says that for three days, Paul was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. In other words, Paul was in total solitude. For three days. Now, what was he doing for those three days? Have you ever been alone like this? Have you ever spent time in solitude like this? If you're a young parent, you're like, this sounds like a vacation right now. Three days alone. What do you do? What do you do when you're alone like this? There's really only one thing to do. Think. You think. And you see, for Paul, his intellectual world was unraveling. Paul had all sorts of doubts and questions about who Jesus was and whether or not Christianity was, was true or not. He's no different from us today. I mean, some of us in this room, you say, I could never believe in the resurrection. You know what? Neither could Paul. Neither could Paul. But now, he's looking at the evidence. He's not checking his brain at the door. He's not turning his brain off. This is not blind faith. This is not just some emotional experience. Paul is thinking. And he, you know what he was thinking about? He was thinking about the question that he asked Jesus in verse 5. Look at the text. He says, who are you, Lord? I want you to notice something. Paul does not say, what must I do? He says, who are you? See, so many people say, I could never be a Christian because of the, the commands of Jesus, because of the things that he tells us to do with, with our money or with sex or with whatever it is. But if you do that, you, if you do that, you're not really thinking. The, the first question is not, what must I do? The first question is, is Jesus who he claimed to be? If he is not who he claimed to be, who cares what he tells you to do? But if he is who he claimed to be, then you have one option, one, one logical option, which is to throw yourself on him and to give every area of your life to him. You see, Paul is thinking. He's, he's wrestling with his doubts. He's wrestling with his questions. He's not just checking them at the door. And this is the way that faith always works in the Bible. In John chapter 20, Jesus shows up and he appears to 
the disciples. But Thomas, the disciple Thomas, misses it. And he says to the other disciples, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I see the scars, unless I put my hands where the nails pierced his hands. And when Jesus shows up, he does not say to Thomas, how dare you question? Thomas, you should just believe. Why can't you just believe? Jesus doesn't do that. He says, here are the marks. Put your fingers where the nails pierced my hands. In other words, Jesus is saying, you need evidence? Here it is. Jesus never talks about faith as though it is something that is all heart and no head. In fact, he talks about it the exact opposite. He says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Christian faith is a thinking faith. And what this means for us as a church is that it means we need to make room for people who have questions. We need need to make room for people who are processing the claims of Christianity. We need to make room for people who have doubts. Sometimes people assume that the church is a place for people who don't have doubts or questions. Not in this church. We assume the opposite. You know, there are so many questions in this room today. Some of us are wondering how... How could there be a good God when there is so much evil and suffering in the world? How could there be a good God when there's so much evil and suffering in my own life? How how could any religion, and, and Jesus makes this claim, how could any religion in a pluralistic culture, in a pluralistic society, one that's as diverse as we live in in Oakland, how could any, how could any religion say this is the only way to God? Jesus makes that claim. And that's, some of you have that, that's a, that's a huge doubt for you this morning, a huge question. Some of us come into this room wondering, how could Christianity be true when the church is responsible for so much injustice towards those who are marginalized and oppressed? And see, maybe you have never felt like the church is a safe place to ask those questions, but what we're actually trying to create here is a church that is the best place to ask those questions. You can't process these things on your own. You can't do it alone. You need community. And we think the best place to ask these questions is actually in Christian community. It's it's on Sundays, and it's in community groups, and it's through relationships with other people. And this is why we always say, we say it almost every week, that we want to be a church where people can belong before they believe. Because belief is a process It does not happen overnight. For Paul, it took three days. For you, it may take three weeks, three months, three years. And we want to create space for that. So what does it mean to be a church for the unconvinced? It means to be a church where people can process their doubts and questions. Here's the second thing. It means to be a church that believes anyone is a good candidate for the love of God. Anyone. Anyone is a good candidate for the love of God. Sometimes we act as though, we think as though, some people are better candidates to be Christians than others. Have you ever thought, 
My neighbor would never believe this stuff. My coworker would never believe this stuff. My friend or my classmate would never believe this stuff. If you have ever thought that, I hope that this text will persuade you to never think that again. Look at verse 1. It says that meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Okay, maybe you have friend, neighbor, coworker, classmate who's got some issues with Christianity. But are any of them breathing out murderous threats against Christians? Friends, no matter how much how, how many objections you're, you're, this person you're thinking of may have to Christianity, I, I promise you they were not as opposed as Paul was. And I love this, that in verse 11, God, you, you get this whole interaction between God and this, this guy named Ananias. And God says, I want you to go into the city and find Paul and lay your hands on him and pray for him. And Ananias says, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people. Translation, God, this guy is not a good candidate. And I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. And God says to Ananias in verse 15, look at the text. He says, Ananias, Paul is my chosen instrument. Christians are not choice people. We are chosen people. If we were choice people, none of us would be good candidates for the love of God. But we are chosen people. And that means that anyone can be a good candidate for the love of God because we do not choose God. God chooses us. We do not find God. God finds us. God seeks after us before we seek after him. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, it ought to shock you. It ought to shock you that you're a Christian. You're not a Christian because you're a better person or because you've figured things out than others have or, or perhaps because you, you just grew up in a Christian home. No, you're a Christian because God went looking for you before you ever went looking for him. And you see, anytime someone is a Christian, it is a miracle. The next time, you know, a friend who's not a Christian finds out that you are and they say, what, you're a Christian? I can't believe it. You, your response to them ought to be, I can't believe it either. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And I just want to ask you, how much would this change the way that you thought about inviting people into this community? You'd be so much less afraid to be open about your faith. You'd be so much more bold and you'd be so much more expectant about what God might want to do in their life. And if you're here this morning and you're, you're not, you're, you're not, you do not identify as a Christian, I'd like, to cons I'd like for you to consider that the reason you were here this morning is because God is looking for you. Uh, Anne Lamott, who is a, a very famous author, she lives in Marin. She's written a bunch of books. 
And in her memoir, Traveling Mercies, she talks about a time in her life where she was at the end of her rope. She had an affair with uh, a married man. She'd gotten pregnant, and to, to cover up uh, the shame, she had an abortion. And she was, she was so devastated, she was so depressed, that she talks in this book about how she, she turned to pain medication and to substances to, to self-medicate. Uh, she, she talked about how she, she isolated herself from everyone. She, she basically said she, she couldn't get out of bed most days. But then one day something strange happened. And laying there in bed, as broken as she'd ever been, all of a sudden she felt like someone had just entered the room. And this is, this is what she writes. She says, the feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. After a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt who it was. Jesus. And I was appalled. Becoming a Christian seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. But I felt him just sitting there, watching me with patience and love. And everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. A week later, I walked into a church. I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. Could not escape. I began to cry, and then I began to run. I raced home under a sky that was as blue as God's own, dream, God's own dreams. And the whole way, I felt that little cat running at my heels. When I opened the door to my house, I stood there a minute, and then I hung my head and said it, forget it, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. This was my beautiful moment of conversion. Some of you are here this morning, and you can't believe you're in this room. If someone had told you a year ago, nine months ago, six months ago, that you would be in church, you would have laughed. But you're here. And see, why are you here? You say, well, you know, there's some things that have happened in my life. And so I'm wondering if there's maybe something to this faith thing. And so I'm on a spiritual Search, But what if the reason you're searching for God is because he's actually already searching for you? What if the reason you're looking for him is because he's looking for you? And you say, you, you know, me? You don't know the things that I've done. I don't. But God does. And if God can love Paul, God can love anyone. If God can find Paul, he can find anyone. There is no one who is not a good candidate for the love of God. Here's the last thing that I want to talk about this morning. What does it mean to be a church for the unconvinced? It means to be a community that has been changed by the grace of God. It means to be a community that has been changed by the grace of God. When God says to Ananias in verse 15 that Paul is his chosen instrument, look at the text, he says... He's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. 
That means that Paul is actually, God is sending Paul out to those who are not yet convinced, to those who don't yet believe. And when Paul goes to them, he goes with the message of the gospel. But you know what else he goes with? He goes with a transformed life. Everyone would have known Paul's story. Everyone would have known the person that he had been and the person he had become. Everyone would have known that he had gone from utterly opposed to Christianity and killing Christians to now preaching a message of love and grace and forgiveness and service and giving yourselves to others. And get this, we know, here's what we know from historians. We know that Paul was basically the most effective missionary in the history of the world. And what that tells us is that his story of transformation was just as powerful as the message of the gospel in terms of drawing people in who did not yet believe in Jesus. And the question, friends, is what changed Paul? What was it that brought about such a radical transformation in his life? And the answer is that it was grace. See, Paul, here's what's interesting about Paul. Paul had done some pretty terrible things. But Paul considered himself a pretty good person. He'd always considered himself a pretty choice person. He says in Philippians chapter 3 that he is a Hebrew of all Hebrews. He's the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And that's not not Paul saying he was self-righteous. Paul is saying, I was completely obedient to God's law. Paul was as moral as you could get. He was as religious as you could get. He was as obedient as you could get. And he had always thought, I'm a pretty good person. Of course God loves me. But then when he encountered Jesus on the road in Acts 9, all of his illusions of being a good person fell away. All of his illusions of being a choice person fell away. And Paul now realized that he was chosen. He wasn't looking for God. God was looking for him. He was opposed to God. He wasn't looking for God. God came looking for him when he wasn't looking for God. And no longer did Paul think, of course God loves me. He thought, I cannot believe God loves me. That's actually one of the ways you know you're a Christian. Is you don't think, well, of course God loves me. You think, I cannot believe God loves me. And you know what that's called? That's called grace. That's called grace, and grace changes everything. It changes everything in your life. And the, and the text actually hints at this at the very end in verse 18. Look at the text. It says, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Paul's eyes were opened. And this is, this is a picture of what it means to become a Christian. When you become a Christian, it changes the way that you see everything. Everything. It changes the way you see God. It changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see others. It changes the way that you see the world. It changes the way that you see what life is about. No longer is life about you, but it is about others. You get turned outside from yourself. It's not about getting, but it is about giving. It is about loving and serving. It's no longer about you getting ahead. It's about you lifting others up. And it's no longer about getting even when people wrong you, but it is about extending 
love and forgiveness and mercy. And you see, the thing that will make us a church for those who are not yet convinced, the thing that will most attract people who do not yet believe is not the quality of our sermons or the quality of our music or the quality of our services or the quality of our coffee and donuts, which are fantastic, and I hope you get one after the service, but it is the quality of our lives. That is what will attract people. Madeline Engel says this. She says, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. You see, most people are not argued into Christianity. They are loved into it. They are loved into it. They are won over by God's grace as they see God's people live gracious-filled lives. There was a documentary that came out about 30 years ago. Uh, It was a documentary on the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, and it was produced by Bill Moyers. And uh, the documentary ends, uh, at the very end of the documentary, it ends with at this concert in Wembley Stadium in London. June 1988, and it was this all-day concert to celebrate the end of apartheid in South Africa. And so for 12 hours straight, band after band had come onto the stage. Most of them, it was like heavy metal music. The, The very last band of the day was Guns N' Roses, which, sweet child of mine, takes me back to, like, my freshman year in high school, okay? All right, anyways, the last band of the day was Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses comes out, the crowd, you know, 12 12 hours, so people are super worked up, and they are going crazy. And every time Guns N' Roses walks off the stage, the crowd is yelling, you know, they they want one more encore, until finally, Guns N' Roses doesn't come back out onto the stage, but out onto the stage walks this African woman, and she's dressed in African garb, and all the lights go out except for this one spotlight shining down on her, and she begins to sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And you know what the crowd did? They just yelled for more Guns N' Roses. (laughs) But then she sang the second verse. And people started listening. And by the third verse, everyone was quiet. And by the fourth verse, everyone in the stadium was singing. 70,000 people in Wembley Stadium singing Amazing Grace. Bill Moyers asked this African woman, he said, what happened out there? And I love this. She said to him, she said, I don't know. It was magic. It was not magic. You know what it was? It was grace. 
It was God's amazing grace. And the world is thirsty for grace. You want to know what's going to make this a church for people who don't yet believe? It's when they find something here that they cannot find anywhere else in the world. And that is what we find at this table. A God of grace. A God who is so determined to win us back to himself that he says, I'm not going to wait for you to come looking for me, but I'm going to come looking for you. And he became a person. And he entered into history. And he lived the life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we should have died. He went all the way to the cross. Friends, this is a God who says, there is no one who is not a good candidate for my love. There's no one who cannot receive my grace. And we are hungry for it. And if you've never tasted of it, this table says you can taste of it today. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this table of grace and for your Son who has made it possible for us to come. And so we come looking to him. We come not looking to ourselves, not looking to our own efforts, not looking to our own religiosity, not looking to our own obedience, but we come looking to his perfect, finished work that has made a way for us to come to this table and to be in relationship with you and to taste of the love that we were made for. Would you help us to do that this morning? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.